Welcome back to the program. Few things ignite all our senses to the degree that food does. One simply a form of sustenance. Food today in restaurants or in markets represents status, sexuality, politics, and education. Where all of this comes together is not just to taste or smell or texture, but in the language that's used by purveyors of food and the language that we all use in talking about food. We're going to talk about this language today with my guest, Dan Jurafsky. He's a recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, a professor of linguistics at Stanford, and studies the connection between social and behavioral linguistics. It is my pleasure to welcome Dan Jurafsky to the program to talk about the language of food. A linguist reads the menu. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. It seems that once upon a time, food was something that was, was really about sustenance. We'd have our meals, and they certainly were rituals that were surrounding that. But it didn't have the same kind of importance, the same kind of world around it that it has today. Was there a particular turning point when this changed? Well, I, I, look, food has always been important if you look at at history at literature for thousands of years food has always been a been a way that the um that the rich have been able to um uh, define themselves and have these fabulous banquets so it's not that that food wasn't a um a sign of different kinds of social things before i think it's certainly true that the younger generation my students for example they're very attuned to food in a way that my generation or my dad's generation you know my dad is 90 and you know men of that generation just didn't think about food that wasn't something they did and i think there has been a huge shift in 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 that in the last few decades and was there any particular thing or event or time that really w- was the tipping point in that shift I don't think so. I mean, we can, you can look at lots of, uh, you know, different immigrant cultures. You know, maybe it was, it, you know, there's lots of cultures in which food is much more commonly discussed, Italian culture and Chinese culture. And, you know, it could be that, that our society just changed as a result of immigration. But, you know, it could also just be, the you know, these things change over time. There's trends. There, there's also the sense that, that French cooking really changed the way we looked at food and looked at cooking here in America. And while that's, as you talk about, in the descendancy right now, its impact somehow feels like it's still with us. Absolutely. I mean, if you um, you think about the great cuisines of the world, you know, French cuisine, Italian cuisine, Chinese cuisine, Indian um French was the one that most affected America early on. It affected because of its, you know, closeness to Britain, and and so it was not just a uh, an important cuisine, but it was really a metaphor for everything that was high class, and it really meant um, uh, the the uh, focus on food um, and on and on and on beautiful food really came from French cuisine. And if you look at say menus from a hundred years ago, the the what characterizes a really high priced expensive restaurant is the use of french and the lower priced restaurants would try to use a little french to indicate class fresh french was a sign of class and that's less true now now it's you know fancy restaurants and uh, you know it's all sorts of interesting linguistic uh, indications of status and french is just one among many you know you can use fancy italian words now and and lots of other interesting things, but it's still the case that it had a huge impact on our culture. One of the things you talk about is that right now the trend is moving a little bit on high, really high-end restaurants towards more minimalism. 
Absolutely. So uh, we did this lovely study. This is uh, with colleagues at Carnegie Mellon. We did a study of 6,500 online menus. So we just looked at the words on all these menus to ask how do menus uh, um, communicate these economic differences? How do you signal that you're a high-class restaurant? Could you even, in fact, look at the words on a dish and use that to decide how much the dish costs? And what we found is that the more expensive the restaurant, the, the less, really, they say, the shorter the description of each dish. Now, they might use very long, complicated words to describe the dish, but there aren't very many of those words. So um, uh, the, the, the menus, on the other hand, that were very long were the middle-priced restaurants. So if you imagine a... a um, a California Pizza Kitchen or a Cheesecake Factory. They have these very long menus with lots of words, and they especially use these descriptive adjectives. You're fresh, rich, mild, crisp, tender, golden brown. So it's as if the high-priced restaurants, they don't have to say their food is crisp, because if it's supposed to be crisp, you're paying for it to be crisp, you'll expect it to be crisp. The middle-priced restaurants, maybe they need to convince you a little bit, and you can see that in the language. As you say, Thomas Keller never feels the need to use the word fresh in the description of anything. Exactly. It better be fresh. And in fact, the cheapest restaurants, they don't even say that, the cheapest restaurants use these kind of vague, positive words like delicious or tasty or savory. If your expensive restaurant says, our food is delicious, you might worry why they're having to try to convince you of this. The most expensive restaurants, we went out the other day, my wife and I, and, and there was no menu. That, you know, you, the, the waiter described the food to us, and at the end I asked for a menu, and he said, well, we could mail you one if you want. There's also the trend, and and I don't know if this is still a trend, I mean, it certainly is true in some restaurants, where they just bring you the menu on a chalkboard. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's, of course, you know, dates back to the olden days before, uh, you know, the menu was developed, you know, when when people would just tell you what they were eating or they might write it on the wall, yeah. One of the other trends that, that you talk about that went through a phase with both expensive restaurants and then even less medium priced restaurants is the provenance of the food that they're serving. Absolutely. We found that expensive restaurants are 15 times more likely to mention where the food comes from, to talk about, you know, the farm, the name of the farm the food comes from, or to say that it's pasture-raised or grass-fed, or even to use words like green market cucumbers, which really don't mean anything. It's nice to know where the food comes from, but green market cucumber doesn't really tell you that because everything comes from a market. One of the things that seems to be true, and you talk a little about this, is that every time one of these trends maxes out, there seems to be a counter-reaction to it in some respects. Absolutely. So this is a general phenomenon. Um, it seems like what you have over time is the, the, um, the elite are borrowing, say, foods or ideas, uh, maybe from other cultures, so we can talk about lots of interesting foods that were borrowed over time from other cultures. And they, they start, I could tell you a story of one of them, for example. Go ahead. Um, take ke- ketchup is a great story of, of this kind of situation. So we think of ketchup as the all-American condiment. But in fact, uh, ketchup, the word ketchup is a Chinese word. comes from a southern Chinese dialect, up or up. And uh, which means fish sauce. It means the kind of fish sauce originally that you get now in Vietnamese or Thai restaurants. And the original story is that in the 17th century, um, the age of exploration begins. You know, the English and Dutch and the Portuguese, they're trading to Asia, and they're looking for silk, for porcelain, for tea. And they get to Asia, 
And imagine these poor sailors, they're, they're, they're on these ships for, for, you know, months at a time. And what are they drinking? You know, there's no fresh water. So what they bring along to drink is wine and beer. And this is before hops has been invented. So there's no way to, to uh, preserve the, the beer. So wine and beer, they go sour. You know, they're crossing the equator. It's hot. So they get to Asia. And what do they find? They find distilled alcohol. So distillation has been invented. It was invented by the Arabs. It was invented by the Chinese. But Europe, it, it's been slow to be adopted, and England didn't have, you know, it was before gin, this is, uh, this is um, before rum. And so um, the, uh, they were very excited to find that there were Chinese fish sauce makers and soy sauce makers scattered throughout Southeast Asia who were also distilling liquor from the local palm sugar wine. So they buy thousands of barrels, the British Navy buys thousands of barrels of this, of this um, liquor, which was called Eric. And they, while they're there, you know, they buy a couple barrels of this fish sauce that they're selling, the salty, savory fish sauce, bring it back to England. And now you have this high, expensive, high-class product. You know, they, the way they bring it back is they bring thousands of bottles in the hull of the boat to Asia. They fill from barrels of fish sauce. They fill these bottles, and they bring the bottles back, you know, and you can imagine that, you know, many of them must, must break in passage. They get back. They're very expensive. So what do you do when you have an expensive, high-class imported product? You know, it's only used by the rich. And so immediately you get knockoffs. So people start inventing knockoffs of ketchup. And these knockoffs are made out of mushrooms. They're made out of walnuts. Jane Austen's family famously had a walnut ketchup recipe. Mm. And then around uh, 1800, tomatoes came from the New World, and so people added tomatoes. And then somewhere, somewhere later, let's say around 1850, the fish sauce, the fish died out of the fish sauce, and what you ended up with was just a tomato sauce. And then after the Civil War, we started in America adding a lot of sugar, and you end up with our modern tomato chutney. So again, so ketchup shows you that these these innovations, they're often borrowed from, from the outside world. So here the, you know, the British borrowed this idea, this fancy sauce from the outside world. And then as it began to change and was modified and made more common, it trickled down to now it's the, you know, it's the most common sauce everywhere. It's in those packets underneath the seat of your car. What impact have restaurant reviews and reviewers had on our language and discussion of food? Well, one thing we found, we also looked uh, in this study at lots of restaurant reviews. We looked at about a million restaurant reviews on the web. So these are amateur restaurant reviews, the kind of things that everybody writes on Yelp. And um, we looked at the language that people use when they review different kind of restaurants, when they like them or when they dislike them. So, for example, if somebody dislikes a restaurant, you know, you read those one-star reviews where they really hated the restaurant, you could imagine a priori that they just didn't like the food. You know, maybe the food is just not very good. It's greasy. It was ill-cooked. And that's not what we found when we looked at these one-star reviews. So it turns out one-star reviews instead display all the linguistic symptoms of trauma. So there's been a bunch of social psychology studies that look at how people communicate when they're suffering from trauma just after a traumatic situation. So they looked at people writing blogs after 9-11, or they looked at students writing in campus newspapers after it had been a tragedy. And this is a, uh, Jamie Pennybaker at, at Texas, a social psychologist, fabulous stuff. And what they find is that these people all display very consistent symptoms. You can really tell that they're traumatized just from the language. And what they do is they write in the past tense as if, so they talk more than they would normally about, about they push things into the past so to, to sort of distance themselves from it. 
They talk about negative things, of course. They talk about terrible and awful things. They talk more than normal about uh, other people. They mention lots of other people. And interestingly, they use certain pronouns way more often than they should by chance. They say we and us and our way more often than, than they normally do. And so the idea is that if you're traumatized, you're sort of appealing to other people and the collective, the group, you know, this bad thing happened, but it happened to us as a group, and we'll kind of weather it together. And that that kind of symptom of trauma, we found that in the reviews. So every one-star review is full of this kind of language. People are saying, we were ignored. The waitress yelled at us. None of us were able to go back. So they're, they're, um, they're displaying these signs of trauma. So what, what you might have thought was a with just an objective description of bad food, is in fact people are displaying very, very uh, deep aspects of human nature just there hidden in the vocabulary that they're using to review the restaurant. What about the impact of newspaper restaurant reviewers? For example, reviewers for the New York Times historically. That's a good question. We haven't investigated news- uh, professional reviews. Um, clearly, uh, they have a huge impact. And um, I suspect they're going to be using some of the same metaphors that we find in the amateur reviews. But, of course, restaurant reviews also have a, a different goal. They have, to be, they have to be funny. They have to be interesting. They have to be beautiful. And so they're going to have um, uh, other kinds of impact. But I think the change from just professional reviewers to having these, this huge number of amateur reviewers, you know, that may have been part of the... the um, uh, part of what changed the, the perception of food culture in America. It's, it's become something that everybody talks about, and the availability of all these public reviews may be part of that. There we was... noticed, in fact, in some of these, um, some of the reviews, the, you know, the one-star reviews, we talked about trauma, but if you look at what people say, the metaphors they use when they really like a restaurant, um, if it's an expensive restaurant, they talk about sex, so they talk about how the pastry was orgasmic or the, the, the cake was more voluptuous, if it's a cheap restaurant, they talk about drugs. So they talk about how wings are addicting and <laughs> that chocolate must have crack. So there's a huge difference if it, in, in the price of a restaurant in the metaphors we use to describe it. And this idea that we're, we you know, talk about cheap food as drugs suggests that we're embarrassed by eating this junk food. We know it's bad for us, kind of like a drug. And, and we're feeling guilty, but because it's a drug, we can say, oh, well, you know, it's not my fault. You know, it's a drug. It sort of forced me to do it. So, again, we're seeing people's attitudes towards foods very subtly displayed just in the vocabulary in these reviews. What happens to the language on certain lower-end or mid-price restaurants where they put pictures of food on menus? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great new trend. So, um, it's very common in, in um, some cultures, it's common in Japan, it's common in China to have pictures. And traditionally, it was, it was just not done in high-class restaurants. And, and I don't know why it wasn't done. I'm assuming the answer is technological. You know, the menu began as just a list of dishes. That was the tradition. And, and you know, uh, the conservative uh, tradition, I guess, was maintained, and pictures were just considered um, showy. If you had to, if you had to, you know, show the food, well, then the person doesn't didn't really know enough to know what the dish was going to be like from the name. So it was again part of this sort of minimalist trend, and um, and sure enough, you know, the pictures, although they've they've uh, appeared uh, in all sorts of menus, they still don't appear in any uh, in any expensive restaurants. 
Do you imagine that this is a trend that as we become more visual as a society in so many respects, this is a trend that we'll see upscale a little bit? I don't see why not. I mean, uh, it's a perfectly, it, you know, it's, if, if you're trying to explain to somebody what they're going to eat, <laughs> um, it seems like a picture could help. On the other hand, if you think about this trend in expensive restaurants to have more and more minimal menus, you know, you can even see it in the words. The cheaper menus use the word you a lot, so they talk about your way, your choice, any way you like them. The expensive menus, when, when there is a menu, they, they don't use the word you. They tend to use the word chef. They talk about the chef's selection, the chef's choice. So really, it, it's like an expensive restaurant. It's like going to the theater. You're putting yourself in the hands of the chef. And, you know, when you go to the theater, you don't expect the playwright to mail you the play in advance or show you pictures of Act 3 so you can decide whether you're going to go to the play or not. You know, you sort of commit, and then you put yourself in their hands. And it seems like our new model of expensive restaurants is it's an entertainment like a theater. And then I guess the picture model just doesn't really work for them. There's also the element that imagination, based upon whatever the menu language is, is a big part of it, the imagination and the anticipation that goes along with it. Yeah, yeah, I buy that. If, yeah, if you, you, you want to be surprised by an interesting dish, and you want something clever that you weren't expecting. The word foodie itself is one that has become part of this trend in and of itself. I think so. I mean, people are definitely getting more getting more uncomfortable with the word foodie. So foodie, you know, ends in that IE. Uh, linguists call that a diminutive. And diminutives have two functions um, across all languages, really. They're used on endings of words for something that you're fond of and then it's kind of small and cute. So, you know, uh, a name like Danny or Billy has that same E at the end spelled with a Y, but it's really the same ending. And, and so foodie is a, a way of, you know, it's a cute and a small thing that we're kind of fond of. But, you know, that's also, it's a diminutive, it's dim- diminishing really. It's saying, oh, this is just, you know, foodie is just a, you know, unimportant, like, you know, fan or something. And so I think um, maybe there's been a backlash, partly because of this, you know, diminutive really uh, is kind of diminishing, and, and partly because, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, uh, a view of, of foodism in general as pretentious and worrying about pretension in general. So I think there's been a backlash. Talk about it from a generational perspective. I mean, you're teaching courses in the language of food to college students. Talk a little bit about their attitude towards food and some of the things we've been talking about with respect to the language of food and and older generations that grew up in a different context. Yeah, I mean, I, as I mentioned earlier, the, the young the students. So my college kids, they're they're 18 years old. I teach a a freshman seminar. So there's 12 kids and they're freshmen. So they're, you know, they're 18 and they're all much more uh, comfortable with food. Um, uh, I think sensuality in general, but certainly I see that in food. And so I chose food as a topic because I wanted, you know, college these days is, uh, you know, everybody has these huge lecture halls. I teach one of them. It's 180 kids. And so uh, every university in Stanford, certainly among them, tries to get ways for the freshmen to have a, a, a really bonding experience with the professor. So we have these seminars where there are 12 kids, we get to know them, we go to dinner, and um, my goal is, you know, I'm the chair of linguistics, I want them interested in language and linguistics, and food was just a, it began for me as just kind of a way to get them interested in, in, in language, and it, it worked, because this generation, they are more interested in food. Food is not a taboo subject for men the way it was, say, for my father's, you know, mm. the, 
the World War II generation. And, you know, we've been talking about it with respect to restaurants, but it's just as true with respect to markets, farmers' markets, different kind of grocery stores, etc. The same phenomenon, the same kinds of, of status and levels of it with respect to language are also taking place there. Absolutely. You, you can find it everywhere. You know, you, you look at signs in the streets, you look at um, uh, labels on food. Uh, we did a study on the words on the back of potato chip bags. And you, you might say, well, how could that possibly show you any, any difference in status? All potato chips are roughly the same price and, and the same kinds of status. But it's not true. The, the very fancy, expensive potato chips have completely different words than the cheap potato chips. Your, your fancy potato chips um, have these phrases like um, less fat, best in America, not like other chips, never fried, no fluorescent orange, lots of no's and negatives and comparing. And in fact, we found that if you just measure price per ounce, every additional no we see on the package correlates with four extra cents you're paying per ounce for that bag of potato chips. In many so it's like you're saying, sorry, it, it's like you're saying when you buy an expensive potato chip, you know, we're not like those other cheap t- potato chips. We're going to emphasize how we're different and how we're not like them, or we're not. In many ways, it not only reflects the changing attitudes about food, many of the things that we've been talking about here, but it's really about the way in which marketing has changed in this country. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, um, uh, a lot of that is really not that recent. I mean, a lot of that is, you can go back to David Ogilvy, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 uh, the, 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 um, the inspiration really for Mad Men. Sorry, the inspiration for Mad Men. Um, uh, he was this really interesting character who also wrote about food. He famously wrote all these great advertising copy for stoves early in his career. And he would he would walk into restaurants dressed in a cape and he would order ketchup for his whole meal. He was just a character, but he emphasized very much in his books and, 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 and in his work that, um, the, that you use different language when you're trying to appeal to different consumers. And I think that's, that was something that now it's been, uh, you know, a truism in the industry since the sixties. Dan Jarafsky. His book is The Language of Food, A Linguist Reads the Menu. It's just out from W.W. Norton. Dan, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you.